Hello and welcome. I'm your host Pooja Sarkar and you're listening to the podcast from the bookshelves of Forbes India. Today's book is a pretty interesting one as it is part of the Rethinking India series by Penguin and this book is called The Minority Conundrum Living in Majoritarian Times which has been edited by Professor Tanvir Fazal. Now these are collection of stories from different authors in the book who touch upon increasing amount of lynching over the decade uh, to laws that have come into play rise of ethnical democracy among other things and let's get started and let's speak to Professor Fazal about it. Professor the first question that I would like to start with is about lynching. Now lynching as you said on the book has been happening for years but over the last decade the cases have increased and you've shared some india spent data around it if you could talk about the entire topic on lynching and how there has been a rise in it see this book is a collection of essays yeah. essays written by people from different walks of life some of them are uh, who have worked their life in, as developmental activists there are others who have also been scholars academics then you have journalists as well who have had close eye on cert- some of these questions so therefore uh, the one which you are mentioning i think is uh, by navsharan singh and this is uh, particularly about everyday violence which has gone up since uh, 2014 she cites the data from india spends to show that uh, more than 90% although the data is from between 2002 to 2018 but uh, what is seen is that since 2014 on- onwards there is a huge rise in such targeted attacks lynchings particularly and uh, so the argument that uh, majoritarianism majoritarianism has received an upswing since the coming of the bjp government well uh, that is what she documents she she went around as part of a karwane mohabbat which is whose ostensible purpose of this whole uh, uh, activity of hers navsharan sings was she was part of a group which was going around entire country spreading the message of uh, reconciliation message of uh, interreligious harmony peace and this is what she comes across the one which she reports more, uh, uh, more is about rajasthan and how the the cow vigilante groups hmm, these are groups which have existed in the past many of them have a, a association whether open or secret with uh, the uh, rss or the bajrang dal and with the coming of the bjp government they started getting some kind of state support as well cow protection itself is a state law it was enacted during the 1960s and uh, it places many kinds of restrictions on bovine slaughter in the name of protecting animal husbandry etc but the reason we know very well however since the coming of the new government at the center there were amendments made in the central act hmm. that is prevention of cruelty to animals rules and these rules were tweaked in a way as to ensure that the state government's sort of a you know exclusive uh, Uh, control uh, over these questions was taken away from them and now it was the central government which was largely deciding on how and to manage uh, and and uh, address this question about uh, uh, what they call as cow slaughter uh, however 
those are the changes which have taken place at the same time in certain states like uh, haryana where the bjp government is there since a long time now this is the second term the, these vigilante groups the crowd protection uh, gangs which are accused of uh, actually enunciating violence in many places these gangs have actually got some kind of a state recognition as well hmm. they carry state id cards now and work in collision with the police to target certain groups who have some kind of a part of their livelihood practice etc trade in cow or animal or practice or, or in the animal husbandry etc among muslims there is a group nafsharan singh has particularly gone and met is the mayo muslims of uh, rajasthan these mayos are also in good numbers in the mewat region of haryana and uh, mayos have traditionally been uh, in the milk trade or in the uh, uh, this uh, you know animal uh, husbandry and uh, <coughs> these are the, this is the community which has been most under attack both in rajasthan as well as in haryana so that is what we see increasingly happening with uh, as majoritarianism comes to prevail in this country so, um, there was a part about you know the entire karwane mohabbat that uh, so i think she also mentioned in the book uh, as part of the chapter so i'm just a uh, bit curious that you know if you could tell our listeners about what that concept is all about this book uh, only documents one part of it you know and which has been done by uh, navsharan navsharan has been a developmental activist and uh, uh, her interest in particularly questions of collective violence etc and uh, she traveled with the karwane mohabbat went from places to places and this is what she documents about uh, individuals the lives affected because of uh, you know uh, increasing vigilantism as well as attack on physical attack violence including killing of uh, people and uh, what is most strange is in many places rather than the the accused of violence being prosecuted it is the other way around it is the victims of violence who have been prosecuted under very various kinds of uh, cow protection acts or whatever you know whereas the accused goes caught free or even if they are arrested there is largest celebration in the society once they get out this has been noticed in say in jharkhand where the central minister actually garlanded people who were convicted of uh, attacking and killing uh, some muslims uh, in in jharkhand similarly you would see that see such kind of celebration of such uh, people who are actually perpetrators uh, has uh, become increasingly very common so uh, the karwane mohabbat also documents the, what has happened to everyday life interreligious harmony which has existed for ages but how suddenly there is a rupture in it and neighbors at force etc so that's a interesting kind of a documentation which has taken place uh, and uh, it also looks into the extent to which livelihoods have been attacked you know. the book mentions about uh, sachar committee report and the equal opportunity commission and i just wanted to understand over the decade and a half 
how has that moved and you know uh, has it moved in the way that pe- that people thought it would and uh, what is really the way forward see equal opportunity commission was uh, recommended by the sacher committee the sacher committee submitted reports in two th- its report in 2006 november and after which there was a lot of talk about it uh, the government also promised in the parliament that they would implement the recommendations of the report the sacher committee did not make any argument in, in favor of reservation quotas etc neither did it actually ask anything specifically for muslims but what it asked for is sort of a structural arrangement in which victims of marginality discrimination etc get an opportunity to air their grievances and get some kind of redressal equal opportunity commission was fashioned or or we can say was envisioned in the same way as you have in uk the race relation act in the race relation act again it is ensured that those who have felt and uh, being uh, discriminated on accounts of the uh, of the race to which they belong they can approach and not only they can they approach it is investigated and further certain kind of a sub judicial power is also given to the commission which ensures that uh, their punitive actions will take place now what has happened with the equal opportunity commission is that it was allowed to gather dust the whole whole idea about it equal opportunity commission it was actually even during the u ua uh, sorry upa times when it was supposed to have been implemented there were impediments from all counts the ex- the expert committee which was uh, you know instituted they it submitted its report and which entirely differed from what the idea the sacher committee had proposed the sacher committee had proposed an equal opportunity commission for all communities all communities who face discrimination who are on the margins hmm. this would include the dalits the tribals the muslims the women etc and because such a committee is one of this vision is that there is no possible redressal in exclusivity because our society is such that we are interlinked we are interrelated and uh, and so therefore an exclusive solution to any problem is not possible it it is counterproductive and so therefore it did not visualize anything exclusively for muslims it actually argued that this uh, equal opportunity commission should be open to all of them should should have its jurisdiction which covers all of them but the expert committee actually made a completely different kind of an argument saying it should only be for the muslims it should not have judicial powers it should at the most be for for doing research on such subjects hmm. without any sort of a grievance redressal which defeated the purpose entirely of equal opportunity commission uh today with the coming of the new government we do not have any talk about equal opportunity commission at all they give a you know very very those kind of slogans which seem very attractive and no, and noble like sabka saath sabka vikas like uh, but what what we get actually is nothing concrete which happens in practice in practice it is the other way around what we see is there is a very very clear open policy of discrimination and which we can notice it in the way in which laws are being framed in the way in which police is working in the way in which you know various kinds of uh, arguments are being put forth 
about citizenship, loyalty, etc. in the public domain. So that is what the Equal Opportunity Commission and its fate is today. There is no discussion around it. So, uh, coming to the part where you have written a chapter on Bangladesh citizenship, yeah. and you have uh, seen, you know, uh, over the just before the lockdown over the last six months, there's this whole controversy around the NRC that has been going around. Mm. If we could yeah. take uh, our listeners to, you know, uh, w your uh, chapter and also your views on these entire, uh, this entire topic around, mm. and, you know, conversation around. See, the, uh, we know now that after 2019 final publication of the National Register of Citizens that uh, at least uh, 2 million, 19 point something lakh, at least 2 million people are excluded from being guaranteed uh, citizenship. Hmm. And this exclusion is on ground that they could not prove their citizenship since 1971 onwards, hmm. since March March 25, which is the cut-off date, 1971 onwards, and as a result of which, a huge number of people have been now excluded. What is going to happen is that they may be able to appeal, but ultimately they will end up in detention camps. NRC was an exercise which was taken up again, although there was a talk of, uh, about our NRC, etc. But in actual practice, NRC came into existence and, uh, and it with full force with the coming of the new government, both at the center as well as, uh, as in the state of Assam. We know there have been problems in the NRC exercise itself. Although it looks at the, as a very efficient bureaucratic system of recording data, of proving citizenship, of de demanding documents and from everyone and based on those availability of documents you prove who is an Indian and who is a non-Indian. But uh, inherent within it were very di many discriminatory practices. For instance from the beginning itself it made uh, two ki uh, kinds of categories. One the original settlers and the other were the non-original the original or the natives were not necessarily required to go through a very painful process of establishing their connection in a family tree and proving through documents of 1971 or before that that their name existed or their or their ancestors name uh, insisted, uh, uh, existed in those documents that were prior to 1971. Think about people whom, about whom uh, most of the Indi Indians who live, uh, large section of the who, who live under poverty, etc., they do not really possess the kind of documents which were being demanded. There was a category of original settlers who, from whom, not so much of a you know rigorous demand for documents were made. Even a panchayat certificate from them would work. Whereas others who were non-original uh, were supposed to produce a whole list of documents and. 14, 15 documents were there through which they also had to prove their blood relation with the ancestor whose name if they had if they found that existed in pre-1971 documents. That was one. What was feared is that the majority of the people who would be excluded from this will be Bengalis and particularly Bengali Muslims and that fear has more or less 
come you know correct uh, after the publication of the uh, this uh, nrc final nrc and then as i started uh, reading the whole thing and more closely observing the entire things what we what i found is that this problem has existed right from the you know mid 19th century onwards mid 19th century onwards there has been a huge migration of people of bengali origin to the areas not called assam but far more dangerous after that nrc was the we all know is the caa the citizenship amendment act the citizenship amendment act actually introduces a principle of of guaranteeing citizenship which uh, has been debated in india in the past and rejected altogether it was rejected because the of 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 the of 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 the potentially dangerous idea which it carried it actually you know hits the very secular foundation of the country we are compromising on the basic fundamental principle of the indian constitution and which is equality before all religions the state cannot then discriminate on people practicing or professing one religion and or the other and based on that decide whom to give uh, you know uh, uh, grant citizenship and whom not to so this is a fundamental uh, uh, you know violation of the principle of universal secular foundation of citizenship so these are the things which we uh, bring it up in this book very strongly and you will see even in policies discriminatory practices have been introduced the series of changes which have taken place uh, in the last 6 uh, years or so in the, uh, the form of constitutional amendments in the form of new kinds of law and also implementation of those laws we can see that how the state has is moving from a you know sort of a unsure kind of a majoritarianism to a very very definite pronounced aggressive majoritarianism we are actually moving i do not say so in the book but we are actually moving towards being an ethnic democracy also we could take a take the listeners through this entire concept of ethnic democracy that you talk about in the introduction of the book and how important is education uh in terms of moving forward uh, for these communities see ethnic democracy actually refers to a situation in which although you have regular elections but the state is at the same time the state is pronouncedly in terms of its cultural you know proclivities say for example language policy etc in terms of also the 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 laws say for example the citizenship law which we have now today so laws being framed there is a clear you know <coughs> a sort of a uh, association with a particular dominant majority religion or uh, not ethnic community hmm. ethnic community it could be a religious community it could be an uh, ethnic community as well for example in sri lanka the Sri it is a it is a constitutionally a sinhala state it recognizes buddhism it has recognized sinhala as the language of the state it, it, it is clearly has a you know 
very pronounced anti-Tamil policies. And uh, in, uh, in actually practice also we know that uh, they have been targeting of Tamil-speaking populations and huge numbers of people being killed. Similarly, you would say that uh, in some ways uh, Pakistan is another example where uh, you have uh, its, its foundation itself being laid on the principle of religion, religion and nationalism. Uh, although pa Pakistan also has uh, a certain kind of minority rights, but uh, at the same time the state acknowledges that it favors a particular religion or the other. Now that is where uh, India chose to be different. In South Asia, India and prob probably later on now we see Nepal as well. So India chose to be different, recognizing its diversity, recognizing the contribution which every community made in its uh, you know, nationhood. It did not uh, openly associate with any particular faith community. Actually secularism though later was adopted as a principle of the state, guiding state policies. And uh, clearly, it did not come to be defined in a, this kind of a, within this kind of a concept such as the ethnic democracy. But that has gradually been abandoned now. We are definitely moving towards a sort of a state which is clearly in favor of a differentiated kind of a citizenship a citizenship based on religious ideas whereas earlier it was forthcoming in offering cultural rights to the minorities and therefore you see mother side sector flourishing but now today those cultural rights are also under attack so education let me see uh, tell you what when we whenever we discuss education in india particularly about the minorities and in, uh, let's be very frank in when we discuss minorities the whole question comes to muslims so and uh, if you see that uh, uh, the Sachar committee showed through on the basis of two different surveys that uh, hardly three to four percent of the Muslim children in the school going age go to the madrasas. So madrasa is not a preferred choice for the Muslims. In fact, Sachar committee could also show that wherever schools uh, were in good numbers and were accessible there was a clear decline um, in terms of people enrolling into madrasas. So if the state wanted to really forward the secular education in amongst minorities and particularly Muslims, the only option then it seemed and uh, uh, was to, to have more and more schools in those areas imparting modern education. So well, th that has clearly not, could not take place. In fact, the data shows that while there is an initial, uh, you know, impediment in Muslim girls, for example, uh, joining modern education, but once they enter, their retention is far more than the boys. So the gender gap is more at the entry level, but closes at the higher level. In, so, where, which means there is an aspiration for modern education and uh, the need is to, to, to go in that direction. Education definitely helps. It helps because it is very much tied to also the kind of, uh, you know, uh, employment opportunities are available and uh, whether 
those con further skills can be developed in that area and whether diversification can take place and thus a good section of the population which is uh, extremely poor or is confined to being in the lower middle class is able to then be socially mobile by entering into job markets earlier and by entering into it based on certain kind of skills which they have attained and thus being able to draw better uh, income etc than what they would get earlier so education helps in that context but education alone may not be if the state remains so discriminatory you will notice in many areas now muslims are being excluded from being employed you know the employers are simply saying it happened in the residential uh, accommodations earlier when uh, they were being denied in certain cities uh, in uh, in say mixed localities uh, uh, an accommodation on rent solely because they were muslims but uh, uh, this kind of a discriminatory sort of a attitude of the state which is extremely prejudicial and demonizes a particular community the the corona period we saw that how the whole focus at one point of time they were talking only about tabligh at they as being the super spreaders but today we know when the cases have gone above 90000 etc no one is talking about tabligh because tabligh contribution in this would be very very minimum at one point of time the state was saying that 30% of them are tabligh's and the people across the country were, were were targeting muslims and muslim vegetable sellers etc now these kinds of demonizations which have taken place has resulted actually in whatever gains education could make in nullifying those gains you know whatever gains the cultural process has made by bringing communities together whatever gains the economic uh, you know uh, arrangements had made there 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 those who are you know manufacturers there those who are laborers there those who are you know uh, say traders and other things and there is a interdependence amongst them they might belong to different communities but now there is with the because of this kind of a demonization and which is consciously being followed by the state as well we see that all these achievements all these gains of a integrated society is uh, being nullified yeah that's quite interesting thank you so much for your time and thank you uh, for being on the podcast